I've heard different reasons from different people. People who are fans or supporters or family or friends of Kincaid would say that he was disliked because he was so popular. The critics um, would say that he is not saying anything with the work, that he is not challenging anything. He's not making any comment about art. What I thought was really interesting was, I can't remember who it was, but the person who said it was dangerous Mm. because there's no room for redemption. Yeah. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, director Miranda Youssef peels back the layers of painter Thomas Kincaid in Art for Everybody. Screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, the film delivers a portrait of a complex man, both celebrated and disparaged for his kitschy art style, and secretly plagued by demons. Following the discovery of a collection of unexpectedly dark paintings, an investigation is launched into the true personality under Kincaid's facade. Art for Everybody is Youssef's documentary feature directorial debut. She also won the 2008 DGA Student Film Award in the West Coast Women's category for her short film, Collectibles. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Youssef spoke with director Andy Timoner about the film. Listen on for their conversation. Big round of applause for Miranda. Beautiful, beautiful film. Yeah. Thank you. Important film. I'm glad you A cautionary tale. Among other things, yeah. I mean, what struck me is just, you know, he obviously had so much pain, which we'll get into, Mm -hmm. but he painted Mm -hmm. this ideal life, you know, and it almost seemed like he was going to, he was going to find that solution Mm. that he was going to be able to live in those paintings. He had those three beautiful daughters and that beautiful blonde wife is just surrounded by this ideal fantasy. Yeah. And it's like life couldn't live up to that or something. I mean, my feeling about it is that he kind of had two like holes, two really deep holes in his heart. One of them being, um, the financial one, because he grew up in really, I don't even know if we, we didn't really spend too much time on it, but he really grew up in very, very straightened circumstances. So there was this sort of drive for financial success, but then also like the fact of his father, but being both absent and, uh, kind of a challenging presence when he was around, uh, I think also created a whole of like just needing to be loved, right? So he found a way to achieve both of the things he wanted, like massive financial success and to some degree, like a large amount of adulation. Um, but the underlying wounds, I think, almost Icarus style, like bring him down. You know, he's, he, he couldn't believe that he deserved it. He couldn't paint his way out of it in a mm-hmm. way or something. Right. Um, right. So yeah, take us back to, well, I have two parallel ideas. I want to hear how you came to, to find Thomas Kincaid in your own life. <laughs> as I sort of remember vaguely 
when I saw his work. It's very memorable. It's very, you know, and then obviously it's in like one in 20 households, so you can't really miss it. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but then also back to, back to what you referred to, back to his childhood in Placerville, Placerville, Placerville. Yeah. Yeah. And that pain and, uh, Mm -hmm. and your, your decision to like, you went back there a little bit, but um, it sounds like there was even more dark, darker stuff, but yeah, let's start with you. You, how did you see his work? In so, the first place. you know, I, um, I guess I, I mean, uh, I'm trying to decide how much I want to reveal about my age here, but like, you know, so in the nineties, we're all, we're right? all here <laughs> together. So, like, so in the nineties, like we're, we're, you know, you, he was part of the air that you breathed. You would go into the mall and there would be a Thomas Kincaid store there. And, you know, um, so I was aware of him. He was not, you know, in my personal collection, I guess you would say. Um, but, you know, I did follow the fact that, you know, I, I kind of remembered when the scandals were coming out, like when the, the lawsuits were happening. And then I also did remember when, you know, he passed away and there was like this big fight about his estate and it was, it was all very terrible and tragic. Um, and, you know, like when I'm like as a filmmaker, the thing that I want to do, and this is my directorial debut. So I'm like speaking kind of, oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm speaking in sort of very grandiose terms, like as a filmmaker. Uh, what <laughs> well, you've, you've what been I, an editor for 15 years. That's true. And, that's true. Or at least 15. And yeah. you have at least 15 credits. So a lot of. Uh, yeah. A little more than that. You've been yeah. pretty productive. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I'm always drawn to stories that are, um, able to talk about bigger, like philosophical or, um, cultural themes, like through the lens of a compelling character story. And so, um, basically, you know, my producing partner, Tim Rommel and I were looking for a project to do during the pandemic. And we were talking with some friends in the art world, the fine art world. And they were like, you know, we've heard there might be something about Thomas Kincaid. And we were like, huh? Like really, like Thomas Kincaid, and then uh, we got in touch with the estate, and it was like just just so much more than we could have possibly, you know, it was more than like a typical sort of like televangelist who preaches one thing and practices another type of story. It was just beyond that. So that that leads me to my next question, which was the the archive versus the interviews. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you get in touch with the estate, and I mean, are they like, oh yeah, there's a vault? Yes. You know, oh right off yeah. the bat. Yeah. Okay. They told us about. They're like, so there's this vault. Yeah. That, that was like right off the bat. Um, they were like, there's the second body of work, you know, that like nobody's ever seen. Like you're among the first people in the world to actually have seen the, the, these works. Um, and, uh, many of which are extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. They're very interesting. Uh, and he was just really a talented guy. I mean, I think that's the thing that gets lost is like, you know, a lot of people, he's, he's such a, um, visual cliche almost where we're at now that like you forget how kind of terrible and tacky that genre of painting was before Thomas Kincaid. Like there was like a genre of like, you know, Christmassy cottages and stuff like that, that were decorating plates and, and they were really badly done, you know, and Thomas Kincaid had a lot of talent and a lot of skill. And he just really like, um, I mean, he kind of, I think, I think we just forget about that because he was so saturated the visual marketplace with his images, you know? 
And we'll get, we'll definitely get into that, yeah. but back to the estate. So <laughs> right. you, you have the archive, yes, right? They're like, Oh, here's the vault. Yeah. But then you have this amazing home video, I mean, mm-hmm. the high dive. Right. They were like, yeah. You know, yeah. you have some, so I have was, a funny, did that come from, you know, getting to know the girls and, and his ex-wife? So, or? Well, so just, let me just say about the archive, like we, um, they did say when we first talked to them, they're like, there's this vault. And also like we have like, thousands of hours of audio cassette recordings as we have in the movie and, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of videotape that were like promotional and marketing and, you know, uh, you know, some of the behind the scenes stuff that we see, like that's all like raw tape and then also the home movies. And we sent, um, like a production assistant up to where the storage unit was to just rent a van and drive it down. The van was full top to bottom with all of this archival material. And it was, I mean, it was Intense. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Yes. Whoever said that. Wow. But they were, yeah. they were, uh, I'm sorry to be so digging into this, but yeah. this is really interesting. They just gave you the archive yeah. in a van. Mm-hmm. What? I know. There was like, a, there, was a, there was a, there's a little bit like at the beginning they were like, well, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna kind of like go through stuff and have our person up here, like do the digitizing and send you hard drives. So that was like the beginning. And then it was just like, we cannot wait this is taking too long. And I, I guess they just sort of decided to trust us, which is like an incredibly brave thing for anybody to do, honestly. But, um, but yeah, they just were like, okay, you know, was that after you had interviewed the family? I think it was. So that makes sense then. So I, the way that I did it, I mean, you talked about me having a background as an editor. And so, yeah. So what I, you know, when I work as an editor, I kind of like lay out the story, like many editors do this. They'll lay out a, a, a board, usually like it used to be physical board. I still use a physical board, a cork board with like index cards. And each index card has a scene and you kind of structure how you're going to make the movie that way. And I just, um, because that's how, what I knew how to do, that was how I was like, I guess I'm just going to do it this way for directing the story. So it's like, what, what do I know are story beats? And, you know, obviously there's stuff that gets discovered along the way, but like, you know, like, let's just do this as a starting point. And so I was in order for me to do that, I did some like interviewing over the phone, just like pre-interviews with the family. And they had all done a lot of, um, really, um, very, they just were very thoughtful about it. They had done a lot of processing. It had been about 10 years since he had died and they'd had the time and they were just incredibly articulate. And these themes like started coming out, like they individually were telling me like more than one of them said he was a performance artist. Mm -hmm. And then Susan Orlean, who's here. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, And totally independently also said he's kind of like a performance artist. And I was like, we have a movie, you know, like, (laughs) so it was um, these themes that were kind of coming out and they had the same, they had memory, certain memories were the same. And so I think that it was starting to become clear to me that it was a story about someone who had denied himself full self-expression in the pursuit of, you know, fame and fortune. Yeah. And, and, uh, Morgan and I were talking about it on the way here and, I, and, and just, you know, I said cautionary tale and she said, well, 
Yeah. You know, he wanted the fame so much. And I was like, I think it's more about capitalism and how mm. it's not good enough to just make profit. Like you have to constantly grow. If you're going to be a publicly traded company, you always, right. like, always have to show more profit mm -hmm. and to be on that kind of hamster wheel. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not enough to be worth a billion dollars as a company and then have a $70, you know, per share stock price. Mm -hmm. And then I don't think to be fair, I don't think they actually got to that. Oh, that, that, was was his, goal. that was his like goal. Oh, okay. It was Which close was a, though, wasn't it? Mm, I kind of feel like the high the was $25 height? a share. Okay. That's not very no. close. <laughs> but he still, what they were making up to like 120, 140 million a year, which is I like, mean, I mean, think about it. It's an art company. No, I mean, when, when, like, when they're cutting the tape on the ribbon on the, yeah. the property yeah. where you can move in right. and live Which in a Kincaid still house exists. is terrifying. It's really, <laughs> that's, that's when I, that's yeah. what I remember yeah. is seeing that somehow yeah. like in my vague, yeah. like in my life, that was when I was like, Oh my God, what is that? Yeah, I know. Um, but I love how you use the outtake. Okay. Now is where we smile, everybody. That was an incredible clip. I know yeah. we found some really amazing things. And I really, I just want to like shout out to my editorial team. Cause like I would not have, I mean, I was the lead editor, but like I had people working with me and shout them just, out. They're not here, but thank oh. you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Good job. We we uh, really appreciate you. Yeah, in exactly. <laughs> <laughs> in there are people here from your team though. Yes, there let's are. Let's shout them out. Um, yes. A number of people. I can't see very well, but a number of people from Tremble There's Morgan. are here. Morgan is here. One of our producers, Morgan Neville, also a DJ member. <laughs> um, and I see some other people. So executive producer Kate Rogers is here. Executive Yay. producer Susan... There you go. Susan, Susan Turley is here and producer Tim Rummel is also here. Um, it takes a village. Oh yeah. Well, I don't think I want to embarrass everybody that much, but yeah, they're one, everybody's wonderful. Actually. Oh, Corbin is here. Our production assistant who actually drove the van. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that's all I can see right now, but I I've never, that. I've never heard of a, of a, of an estate handing over an archive like that. That's amazing. Where, where are the vault? Yeah. Where, where are those vault paintings now? What's going to happen with them? So the, yeah, that is a great question. So the truth is, is like, I, I don't have the definitive answer about what's going to happen with the vault paintings, but I believe that the estate is hoping that they can get them to be viewed by the public. Um, Potentially in conjunction with this film being more widely available. I thought that, <laughs> yes, let's all hope for that. Yeah. Um, 2023, what a year. Um, <laughs> uh, so the, the, the images, the self-portraits, I mean, you yeah. did such a beautiful job of showing us um, this person's dark side mm -hmm. uh, in through his work, but... Uh, it seems to me like he, why was he hated this much? Why was he mm. disliked by all his colleagues? Like, did you ever really get, did any of his kids or wife or anybody really shed light on that? Cause I, yeah, it seemed like the, the disease sort of took over mm. partway through, like, you know, where, mm. where his life couldn't fit into a painting and he sort of went over the deep end with needing to perform all the time. Right. Um, but early on, why was he so tortured? Did you ever quite piece that together? Well, wait, all right, so I'll tackle the part about the cri critics reviling him first. Maybe. Oh, if okay. That's, or, well, that's fine. Yeah, we can jump to that. I mean, the, I think the, 
I've heard different reasons from different people. People who are fans or supporters or family or friends of Kincaid would say that he was disliked because he was so popular. Um, mm. And the critics um, who, I mean, I feel like I gave them their um, say, yes. um, would say that he is not saying anything with the work, that he is not challenging anything. He's not making any comment about art or society, or he's not engaging in a dialogue, a, a visual or contextual or cultural dialogue with other artworks of the time. What I thought was really interesting was, I can't remember who it was, but the person who said that it was dangerous mm. because there's no room for redemption. Yeah. Okay. Can we just all say how much we love that guy? So his, <laughs> his name is Daniel Seidel. He is both a an art curator and critic and historian and a theologian. And he was raised as a, in a fundamentalist Christian American tradition. So he, like he wrote, basically when Kincaid died, he wrote a blog post about this idea that like the paintings killed him. And so of course we were like, we need to talk to this guy. And, you know, he, he really gave, he has such a unique and interesting perspective, but, you know, I will just share that, um, at a recent screening, um, so the family came to South by Southwest, they were there for most of the festival. And at the last screening, I was sitting next to Nanette and that line where he says, there's no room for redemption. She reached over and put her hand on my arm and she said, thank you. So I think that she at least had this understanding that he had built this kind of gilded cage around himself that was not actually saving or helping him. So so back to his pictures when he was little oh, yeah. that were just kind of really, really dark. Yeah. Do we understand that? And that was from his childhood and that was from feeling, un, you know, we deduce that he just was a, a cauldron of pain back mm -hmm. then and yeah. somehow figured out a way to put a sheath on it, like at some point? So or? my take on this yeah. is that, you know, so Kincaid had, he was painting a, a lot of those more finished oil paintings that are darker are um, from the Berkeley years. And as we see in the film, and this was actually really kind of new information because I did, I interviewed his um, college girlfriend and I don't think that this information has been publicized until now, but he had basically a mental breakdown um, when he was at Berkeley. And my reading of the situation is that he left Berkeley to go to art center partly because he was like he couldn't deal and he was having this breakdown. And then I think that his conversion to born again Christianity was also a part of that. So I think that he was looking for something to help himself feel better. And I think you see in the film, and I kind of love this, is like he's this scruffy haired, kind of like floppy haired, like sort of almost hippie at Berkeley. And then he just cleans up into this, like he's got this short haircut and he's got the mustache and he's wearing the plaid and he's like very like, you know, he looks cleaned up, you know? And I think that he just was like, I'm taking on a new persona and I'm putting all of that stuff behind me now because I don't, it's not me anymore, even though it was him <laughs> inside. It, it, um, 
it's like a deal he made, right? Almost mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm going to make, I'm not going to be Van Gogh. I'm not going to, I'm not going to live a life yeah. of pain and pennilessness. I'm not going to chop my ear off. Yeah. Which is where he was basically heading. So, um, what I love about what you did is also just in showing us and in covering the early years of him doing, you know, uh, backdrops and painting backdrops mm. he was so incredibly talented yeah, as right? yeah i know it really shined a light on this yeah immense talent and it's just kind of like it just for all of us artists which is probably all of us here um you know it's where where do you where do you where do you focus your talent mm. you know it's a choice you make where you focus yeah. your talent and yeah i was so happy to find that audio tape that's at the very beginning because it just sets up the challenge that he, the thing that he was wrestling with his whole life is like, do I want to be commercially successful or do I want to be Van Gogh and be potentially starve, but be critically acclaimed? And really the truth is he wanted both. <laughs> Again, from those holes, right? Like he had the financial need and he also had the need for adulation. He and that financial need, it just seemed like then he went from just born again or devout or pious to, you know, evangelical because that sold. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of becomes this figure of performance art, I suppose, that he can't get out of. Yeah. And so it's like he just seems to boomerang from like that and just go completely into like skull wearing madness, you yeah. know, like <laughs> bike riding. Yes. He just goes flips to the dark side. Yeah. Um, acnic, yeah. Yeah. I mean that the way you tell it, it seems like it's a relatively quick transition. Like as soon yeah. as he loses his family, he kind of is like, well, forget it. That, like, yeah, that part. Yeah. I don't even know if that would be at acnic to be honest with you, the, the hair extension skull ring guy. <sighs> um, not sure about that, but, but the thing is, um, he had been playing with different personas since a very young age. And so all the, the stuff that they talk about, like, with him being a biker dude, which he like, he and his wife would go on like biker weekends. Like they would both get dressed up in leather and go. Yeah. Like interesting. And he and they was, kept that low. Probably. They, I, it was not part of the public. Yeah. It doesn't go image. with the cottage. But you know, stuff. imagine like, you know, imagine this guy in the age of cell phones and social media. <laughs> like it's just, I don't know exactly what would happen, but he would have been all over that stuff. Like he would totally be all over AI and Dolly and like the whole, like he would be doing that because he was really an early adopter of like technologies. Replication. Replication. Licensing. Yes. That, <laughs> like, all of that stuff. Like an early, like, you know, we have Giclee printing now, but like he was kind of doing an early version of that mm-hmm. before the the spray printing. So, so the family, how did they know about the vault? What did they know about Mm -hmm. the vault? And, um, yeah. Tell me about that. So the vault. So it was like a bank that was going out of business and he bought it (laughs) and he installed it in his home studio. And so he was just putting everything in there. So as you see in the film, like there's one area where they have the published works, but as the daughters say, it's like, there's only like 600 of those and there's 6,000 pieces in the whole vault. So it's about 10% of like 10% of what he did was the published works. He was constantly painting, constantly drawing. But the thing that was a problem for him was that, and I think this is really relevant to like our current like age of branding on Instagram and TikTok and whatever, but like he had put, he ran out of time. 
to do the kind of work that he was doing, self-expressive work that he was doing when he was in his 20s. He just ran out of time. Like he was so busy going to events and promoting and shooting videos and, and doing the actual paintings. And like, he was really, really busy. And, you know, again, it was like a gilded cage that he built for himself that he chose and that he refused to walk away from. And what you're saying is that it's, it sort of applies to us spending so much time on social media instead of actually being productive. Well, I'm not, or no, I'm just trying to, I'm just going to say that I think it, it, I think that turning yourself into brand, a brand has got costs. I agree. I think that that's a big part of, of the story yeah. that I think makes it a, a, an important film. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for you as an editor, and I'm an editor so I, I, and director, so I, I appreciate this um, combo. But how did it come to your aid mm-hmm. in directing your first script? Uh, documentary. I always right. call it a scripted film. <laughs> documentary. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, so the, the early, the thing I said at the beginning about like, you know, laying it out just kind of, because that's what I knew how to do. That was very helpful. Um, just taking that editorial, like essentially screenwriting technique and applying it to the development stage of developing the story. And then just being on the like when I was filming with people and when I was thinking about the interview questions and whatever, like, I mean, and especially when I was filming with filming the non-interview material, like stuff with the daughters and, and vault stuff and all that stuff, you know, sometimes the DP would say to me, oh, well, why don't we do this? And I'd be like, no, we're not going to use it, you know, cause I just knew we weren't going to use it. Um, so it, it made it efficient in that regard. Um, And then I would get, I guess I would say that, you know, because so much of the film is archival material and it's like, obviously we have like hundreds of hours of videotape and hundreds and thousands of photographs and hundreds and thousands of artworks. Like, um, I think that I was able to, and just like rely on my editorial knowledge that like, we are going to get this done (laughs) in order to not be so daunted, you know, it's just to like, we're going to put processes in place to like, be able to filter this material so that we have, we can just work with it and like boil it down. How long was the whole process? Yeah. We made this thing in record time, to be honest with you. We started filming in February of 2022 and we finished in March of 2023, which is bonkers. That is pretty nice. And I'm not, I'm too old to do that ever again. So, but so there's you know, a one-off. In that I way. think so. Yeah. I think, I think your it, own cautionary yeah, tale. <laughs> totally. Completely. <laughs> what else did you learn from it? What was, what were your greatest takeaways, you know, from just studying his character so closely as well? And just how did it do you impact you personally? You know, I felt like there was something ultimately I felt like I kind of recognized him. Like I've had people in my life who are similar to him, but like, I really felt like I connected with the daughters. Um, and I think that, um, they are the soul of the story. You know, I think that like, it would be hard to relate to the story or feel moved by the story if it weren't for them giving their perspective. Cause he's been gone, even though we have a lot of material of his, um, I think that, I think that, um, 
I feel like I learned something about, you know, like when you're editing, you know, you feel like, you know, the people that you're, um, that you've like, whose interviews you've edited or whatever, just because you spent all this time with them. And then if you see them on the street, you're like, Oh my God, it's you. And they're like, who are you? Um, <laughs> which has happened to me. And, <laughs> but I think that, um, you know, when you're directing, it's like, you actually have to build that relationship. And that was like, so that was like, you know, I, I had done a little bit of training in film school, but it was really just like needing to learn how to do that, you know? At least when you walk up to them, they'll know who you are though. Yeah, so that's the positive that's very part. True. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, what, what was your favorite of, of everything you filmed? You filmed a lot of critics and, mm. and those wonderful moments where you show them yes. his actually great work, right. you know, <laughs> wow, he could do every single era ever in right. art perfectly. Um, and watch their minds be blown. But, but what was your favorite moment? Like what? in terms of directing and being out there in the field and, and just sort of an aha moment or just a breakthrough or something that just like oh God, touched you. A lot of those. I mean, actually like filming that sequence um, of the critics, like a lot of people have said that they love that moment. And actually that was one of the first things that I was like, we're definitely doing this because I have like a little bit of an experimental mind in a way. And I was like, I just want to know, like, what would the critics think of this? Like, I, I want to know. So, you know, we live in an iPad world, so we were able to make that happen pretty easily, but it was, um, that was, that was really fun. Um, I do, oh my God, one of my favorite things, this is so small, but is when Dan Seidel, the evangelical guy, the critic is like, I just wish that there was, there's a part of me that wishes that he had a vault somewhere. <laughs> and that was I swear to you, I did not, he didn't know anything about it. He just came out and said that. And I was like, we have a movie. So there's always a magic moment yeah. or two like that. That yeah. is just so much fun. That was small. I mean, I really just loved interviewing everyone. Like they were all amazing people. Yeah. And I was felt so honored actually that they gave me their time and their thoughts and their attention. You know, I thought his wife was incredibly open Incredible. with you as well. Yeah. Like really. Yeah. And so the daughter had so much pain still. Yeah. I mean, carried. honestly, like his, he just casts such a large, long shadow over all of his daughters and his wife, wife's lives that I think that, um, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm taking credit for too much, but I wanted to give them a voice. Like I wanted them to finally be heard because he, his voice and his story or what he was putting out there was always the one that was being heard. And they kind of were just almost like props. Um, one of them said that. One of the girls, yeah. I can't remember which one, mm -hmm. who had a... Chandler, she says, I'm somebody too. Yeah. Or it, one of them said, I just, he never really thought about me or I wasn't much part of his... Oh, Merritt says that. She's like, he didn't know me that well. And yeah. like, my life didn't matter. My life didn't matter. Yeah. That's a terrible f way to feel about a parent. Yeah. And yet still love him so much. Yeah. They all do. Yeah, it must have been so painful to yeah. to know that he was killing himself, you know, yeah. that whole time. Um, and I love the the interview you do with that fan of his, the artist who is in his oh, easy Jeffrey chair, Valance. that easy uh, chair. Also. Okay, wait, I have to say this. Yeah. Jeffrey Valance has that. He's got a show at the Tanya Banokdar Gallery right now until sometime in June where that easy chair is, is that lazy boy? It's on display. It's on display. I'm going to look it up it's right after Tanya this. It's Tanya Binokdar Gallery in Hollywood. 
Amazing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He, he really relates to Kincaid in, um, on like a spiritual kind of level because that's what Jeff, Jeffrey Valance is like an internationally known, like con conceptual artist. And his work has to do with spirituality. And like, I think he thinks, I think he considers himself the living, um, I don't know what you call it of Richard Nixon. So like, if you ever want to incarnation, you, well, no, like if you want to talk to Richard Nixon, you can a medium, you can, yeah, a medium. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. That's quite a claim. He's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> I love that guy. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to let this time go by without giving the audience a chance. Mm -hmm. Oh shoot. We have one minute. So we have one question. Okay. You're it. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we have a sales agent and they are working on it. Um, <laughs> I it's know. a tough year. It's, it's a tough, year. It's a tough um, year. I mean, any updates are being posted on our, um, Instagram account. If you have Instagram, it's art for everybody film. So that's, it'll get out there that's eventually. All of the film festivals and all of the screenings. Are People are just, the industry's a little bit paralyzed at the moment yeah. as we know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that the, there was like a substantial life insurance policy because um, it was like a one man company. Right. And so um, I don't know that much about it. But, but yeah. they seem like, OK, like when you showed up to interview them, they yeah, were in a nice house. They're OK. Yeah, they're totally fine. Yeah. On a golf course or no. no. OK. No. Oh, <laughs> right. But he loves Kincaid. Um, I think that he just, I think Ralph, my impression of Ralph from my dealings with him as well as the interview is that he believes in artists and he believes in creators and that he really, really clicked with Tom in a very like loving way. And he felt like, you know, the job that Tom did for him was really incredible. Um, and, uh, I think he just felt like sort of a deep, like affection for him for, for the rest of Tom's life. Yeah. Um, in the front, yeah, right here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, quick question. How much did the structure change mm. during the process? Yeah. You know, to be honest with you, the structure, like I looked at my boards from the beginning to the end and like the basic structure didn't change that much. And I know that like the people who are on the team here are like, that. yes, it did, but it didn't really. Like it got a lot shorter and it got a lot cleaner and it got a lot more focused. But fundamentally, like I knew, like there's a pretty great chronological rise and fall built into this. And I also knew like as part of my style, both as an editor and I guess now as a director, that like I like having these rewind moments where you can like go back to whatever is happening in one moment of the story and like connect it where to a moment that's resonating in a different time period. And I am so happy with how it turned out to be honest with you because Yay. like it's so like, yeah, you should be. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I just like, cause when I watch it, I'm like, wow, the layers are really like, you know, every like 20 minutes or something, you're going into like a deeper layer. And I'm like, wow, that actually worked. Yeah, <laughs> you <know>? it does. <laughs> so. You did such a masterful job of the rise Thank as you. well as the fall, you know, like Thanks. really 
I mean, I understood Thomas Kincaid, but I had no idea quite the yeah. level that right. it was. And yeah. it set him up to just really to understand and, and to make it a very important film for our time. Thank so you. thank you for making it. Congratulations. Yeah. A round of applause for Miranda. Thank you so much. I'm so glad yeah. that, uh, so glad to be here and I'm glad to share it with all of you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 